Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. What can go wrong if you wait too long to plan your exit strategy? Bill Prinzavalli is an executive coach and an organizational consultant. In this episode, Bill shares the highs and lows of his entrepreneurial experience. Bill founded a software company in his basement, growing it to $10 million in revenue. And at one point, he had a $30 million valuation and offers to buy the business. Eventually, those windows of opportunities closed, and so did the company. Going through the growth and then the contraction of the business taught Bill some valuable lessons that you'll want to hear. What struck me were these three things. Having an exit strategy along the way, not just waiting till the end. Knowing how long you want to work in the business and planning for that transition. And measuring your business valuation along the way. We don't usually think about these things as we're growing our business, but it's critical. Enjoy this Succession Stories conversation about why your entrepreneurial journey is not just the start, but also the exit with Bill Prinzavalli. Bill Prinzavalli, it's awesome to have you here with me today. I've never had an expert in improvisation, so (laughs) I think this is going to be a key aspect of what we talk about a little bit later, but I want to welcome you and we'll dive right into your entrepreneurial experience. So welcome to the show. Great. Thank you, Laurie. It's great to be here. Tell us a bit about you and your background as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) I I grew up in Brooklyn with uh, immigrant parents. And so our goal was go to college, get a good job, work in corporations, become maybe a manager, vice president, have a nice 401k plan and retire. That was the plan. But I started that process, went to college, got some good jobs. I was working as a a computer programmer, but then I got laid off. And through several circumstances, I found myself without work, but with an opportunity to become an independent rep selling computer software for other companies. So I did that, and that just grew and grew and grew. I mean, I started out in the basement of my condo with one person, you know, the old story, you know, I got two file cabinets for 50 bucks, bought a door, put it on there, screwed it together. Bingo, I had a desk, <laughs> you know, and for a mail station, which was, we needed snail mail back then, got an eight foot table, little cubies, put all the literature in there. I was set to go. And then as the company grew, I brought in another person and another person. 
I basically had four people in my basement. And finally, the condo police came knocking at my door and said, hey, what's going on? You know, and so I got a letter from them saying, get your business out of here. So I got some some legitimate office space. And and then another company found out I did this. And so one company after another, there were several companies I had connections with where I did all the sales and marketing and they did the research and support until one of those companies wanted to sell out. And they came to me and they said, Bill, we want to sell you our company. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know how to buy a company. <laughs> you know, I'm a kid from Brooklyn. What do I know? So uh, he said, well, we'll make it easy for you. Get a lawyer, whatever. We just want to give you the product because you know it the best when we want to get out. So I got a lawyer and I bought the company, paid them out over a few years time. And it was a piece of cake. And it just kept growing like that. People just kept hearing about me and I kept selling their software. And then I eventually had a team of my own when I bought that company. So now I had uh, research, development and support. And so we were developing our own products. And so the company just kept growing and growing and growing. And every two, three years, I got a new office space until ultimately we had over 50 people and uh, we were doing $10 million of business annually. Companies were at $30 million. And we had 19 international distributors selling our products. I mean, it was a huge company from, you know, it just sort of happened. When you bought it, how big was the company? Oh, my goodness. I bought that company. There were about a dozen people. There were about a dozen people. people, And I had about five or six, maybe seven of my own. So we merged in together. And I said, okay, now I have research and development staff. What do I do? Well, okay, you're in charge of research and development. Actually, it was pretty seamless. It was kind of like a accidental entrepreneurship. You sort of stepped your way into it. And as you were going through that or those early days where you were, as you said, you were growing, growing, were you on your own? You didn't have a partner, right? Correct. I, I was on my own, number one. And number two, I had no role models. You know, like I said, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur because my family, like I said, they were immigrants, they were laborers, they worked in a garment industry. There was no models whatsoever. We didn't own businesses. You know, we just worked in corporate. That was the huge goal to work in a corporation and to become maybe a manager, a vice president. That was a huge, a huge success for us. And that's all I was aiming for. And then I, so you're right. I was an accidental entrepreneur. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so bring us back on a timeline here. This is in the 80s. Yeah, started the company in 86. Yeah, that's when I got laid off. And that's exactly December 86. I started in my basement. Okay. And this is Prince Software is the name of the company. Correct. Gotcha. Now, 86. Okay. So some of us listening can remember back those days, IBM, Big Blue. It wasn't as prolific amount of computer software companies out there and technology companies. So you probably stood out. What specific problems were you tackling at that time? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very astute of you, Laureate. Prior to that, in the seventies, in the early seventies, first of all, we're only talking mainframes. Okay. That's, that's all that really existed then. Many computers were out there, but not very prevalent. All the Fortune 500 companies had mainframes and IBM mainframes. And IBM mainframe came with all of the software included. So it was the 1970s that the independent software market emerged. And companies started to build products for the IBM mainframe that were a little better than what IBM provided. And that's how that industry blew up in the 70s and in the 80s. And so I was with companies in that regard with products like that. And, and that's why when I, when I offered my own, I knew the market. I knew the IBM market. I had all of the contacts. So when people had a product that they built for an IBM mainframe, they came to me. I had all the sales and marketing and the contacts expertise. So that was the the environment. 
And also the environment was snail mail packaging. You know, you send out a flyer and then when, when they buy the product, you send out a tape and, you know, and, and a manual. I mean, there was nothing online. Yeah. And so you grew and grew. You were finding your niche. And then there were some challenges. Yeah, there was opportunities and challenges. There always are. So yeah. tell us a little bit more about the story. Sure. Well, the growing challenges were great. When you're in a growth cycle, yes, you have stresses, but those are good stresses, right? I mean, it's like, okay, you're overworked, you need more people, or you're getting in more business, and or you need a bigger office and you need some financing. So those are all good problems, all right? Because you're growing and you need to support the growth in some manner, either with people, with capital, with products. You're not getting the product out fast enough. You don't have your support team is not big enough, and so you're hiring and hiring. So those are great problems. And during that process, we kept adding adding products and adding products. Now, in the late 90s, there was a set of products that we developed and, and, and co-sold, which was all for Y2K. I mean, that, that was huge. The kind of products that we had was system software. It wasn't application software. It was all system software for the IBM computer itself so that it operated more quickly for the applications that ran on it. Okay, so um, so Y2K software was a perfect niche for us. So we developed a couple of components ourselves and other sister companies, brother companies had products that we sold. So we had a beautiful package of Y2K software. Now, the thing that that I didn't do well because I had no models was think about the exit strategy. All right. I mean, we just kept growing and growing and growing. And that's what my focus was. We knew, for example, that after Y2K, we'd have to develop new products. And we did. We had new products developed. We had other products ready to go. And so in my mind, we were just growing. Now, one company came to us around 1997 and said, Bill, I, I think I should, uh, I re- we'd like to take you public. I go, okay, what does that mean? How does that work? And he says, well, we'd have to uh, go around the country and 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 sell you to to whoever, I don't even know who. But then, of course, I knew what would happen is that I'd be constantly called by the by the Wall Street folks saying, how are your quarterly earnings doing? You know, and I knew who they, they would be young MBAs right out of college. And you know what? I didn't want to hear from them. I mean, I, I knew what I was doing. And I always had a long range approach. And I know Wall Street doesn't. So I didn't want to be subject to the quarterly earnings. Plus, I would have had to take a good amount of time off to travel around the country to sell the company. And I wasn't set up to do that. If I was gone, because the company was still growing quite quite rapidly, if I was out of the office every day for a while, we wouldn't have survived. So I turned that down. The next thing that happened is that a company came to us about our size, about another $10 million company, and wanted to merge with us in order to potentially sell to someone else. Now, in retrospect, that could have been a good deal, all right? But he came to me and it was just, he came to me in such an insulting way, talked to my people and asked them if they wanted to do that. And I said to myself, hey, this is my company. You know, you want to do something like that? Come talk to me. So I just got turned off by the whole approach. Now, I don't know if he did that consciously, if he was trying to manipulate the situation by getting them excited. I don't know what was behind his, his thinking on that, but I turned that down. Now, he ultimately sold that company for about $40 million of stock. And I think the stock eventually went down. So big deal. It went down to $20 million. <laughs> You know what I mean? He approached, he approached your senior leadership or who did he talk to? We had a meeting. He asked for a meeting because he wanted to discuss 
the synchronicity of our products. And so in that meeting, he brought his senior staff and I had my senior staff at my office. So we had about a dozen people around the table and we're talking about products and and how they might work together and how we might refer to each other. This is all very appropriate things to talk about to two senior staff people. But then he brought up the merger in that room. And I said to myself, no, no, time out, buddy. Time out. This is this is not an appropriate conversation. You want to have that conversation, you have that after. Say, hey, Bill, you know what? Let's talk privately. And then he can tell me what his thoughts are, what his ideas are. And then I can listen to him. I could ask him questions and we could mull it over. And then I, I, I might have considered it. But with the way he did it, I was just so turned off. I, I just I just said no. Was this uh, a business competitor? Or just someone in the ecosystem that you knew of or had some Someone, with? I knew of them because a lot of the, the founders came from a, a larger software company that we both worked at. We worked in the same realm, but they had different products. So we're really not competitive. And, and it would have been a reasonable merger because we all had products for the IBM mainframe. So it did make sense to at least consider that. It's like an interesting lessons learned because- you know, for anyone who's in either in the position to do an offer or to in receiving an offer can probably relate that it's not only the offer itself, but it's the way it's delivered, right? And that setting was just the wrong setting. Yeah. To your point, if he had come to you privately or one-on-one, you might have entertained the idea, mm-hmm. but it just set you, you know, it turned you off completely from his his yeah. approach. Yeah. And it really moved the whole conversation from a potential merger to I don't see how I could work with you the way you're talking to me. I mean, it just, I didn't even get into the conversation about the value of a merger, the considerations of a merger, and all of the things that we could have talked about because I was so turned off by the approach. It really shifted the conversation from the technical or logistical um, uh, possibilities of merging two companies, like a, a normal business meeting of consideration. Let's consider this. We didn't even get to that because he turned me off so badly by inappropriately talking about this to my staff. Yeah, it shut the door. It just shut the shut door. The door. Yeah, I did. Now, was I too stubborn? I don't know. But you know what? I just said, you know, sometimes you just got to go with your gut. And I said, you know what? This is not right. That's fair. That's fair. And at the time, you had the IPO discussion and then this discussion. This was still all around maybe the late 90s. This is still the late 90s. So so what I did then, the third thing I did was I did work with a merger and acquisition company uh, because this, it was hot. Uh, I mean, uh, my friends were selling their companies for $8 million, $10 million, $15 million, whatever. So, um, so now I started working with a uh, you know, prestigious company uh, on the West Coast. And they said, yeah, Bill, this is great. They said, your company's worth about $30 million and there should be good interest in it. You know, you've got, uh, uh, you know, good products. And, and I always say, if, if you know, this is a sweet spot in selling a company, right? I'll just divert here for a second, then I'll get back to the story, uh, which I I learned afterwards. (laughs) If you try to sell too early, you're unproven. You know, the the companies, the buyers are going to say, okay, we don't know if your product works. We don't know if, you know, you're totally unproven. Uh, There's a sweet spot in the middle where you can see that where the buyers can see that there's a proven product. There's a, a management team that works and is effective that there are customers there that have bought the product and like the product, uh, and that the uh, service department is servicing them well. All right, when you have those elements in there, then the buyer is interested. But the buyer wants to 
buy before they reach their big growth cycle. All right, because they want they want they want to get a return on their investment. So, so if I had sold, if I had gone through that process about two years earlier, uh, I probably would have sold the company. Because when I was working with the uh, merger and acquisition company, it takes a long time. I mean, they set up meetings, and I, I spoke to many, many large organizations with them. We had great meetings. They put a book, big book together. A beautiful professional job. But time went on, and it kept ticking on. And as time kept ticking on, you know, the buyers are saying, well, okay, Y2K, by the time we do this, you know, your Y2K growth spurt will be over. What do you got after that? Well, here we have after that. And they go, well, we don't know if that's going to work, you know. So the time to really have, would have sold it would have been like 96 time frame, 96, maybe even 97. I felt I was about a year and a half too late. If I had started that process with this M&A company, uh, these larger companies would have bought us up snap. Maybe not for 30 million, but maybe 15 million. Oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting point. I mean, at the time of that growth curve, if we can kind of think of that, let's see, you would have been, you said your valuation at one point was 30 million. Right. If you had sold, you think it would have been more like 15? Sure, because because we were doing about 10 million by the end of uh, 99. And at that point, they were talking about three times the uh, revenue, which is really outrageously high. We all know that. I mean, nowadays, you know, you're talking about EBITDA and just the profits and maybe two, maybe one, two, three times that based on the product. But those days, the, the software market was so high, they were paying, companies were paying three times the annual revenues, right? Go figure. So, so if I had sold it like two years earlier, instead of 10 million, we might've been doing uh, 7 million. You know, so uh, when we were doing that amount of annual revenues, six million, seven million, uh, maybe even five, even five million, uh, whatever we were doing about two years prior to that, you know, five, five, six million, they would have been able to see and project the growth curve because of the Y2K software and said, okay, so we'll give you three times five million or three times six million. And right. that would have been enough. <laughs> right. So then the bankers, you know, you had these meetings and these conversations, you, you were learning about the market dynamic and what the appetite was. It was almost like this bad news tour that you were hearing this bad news sort of consistently that, you know, you were on the other side of that peak. Yeah, I was on the other side of the peak and and the companies were doing some of the larger companies were saying, well, we'll just take this product or just take that just cherry picking type of thing. And um, so. So, yeah, the excitement was not there as much as it would have been two years prior. I mean, think about the excitement in 97, for example. I've got an entire suite of Y2K products. At that point, the sky was the limit. And I think we were all giddy with it. I mean, all of us, we had, we used to have um, uh, trade shows with all the Y2K companies. We were all totally friendly with each other because the market was so huge. And there were only about a half a dozen of us, maybe a dozen that had products. So we said, we're all going to be rich. So it was very friendly and very cordial. And we were all very excited. So if we had tried to sell the company back then with that level of excitement, larger companies would have, would have bought us up in a snap. So what ended up happening to print software? Well, it went all the way up and then it went all the way down. Uh, that's the short story. The longest story is um, Y2K happened and I needed to we, – we, business really stopped in August 99. I'll never forget it. August 99, all of a sudden, all business stopped. And it was like somebody put a sign out, you know, you don't have to do any more work. And we didn't understand what happened, but uh, 
companies were, were tired, finished, whatever. So I had to keep the entire staff there until the end of the year because there were still projections that there was going to be a lot of problems come Y2K. Uh, in terms of uh, third world countries, U.S. government uh, industries, and and several organizations that were that were reported to have not done their Y2K work, including several Asian companies. So, so we said, okay, we're just going to wait till keep the staff, you know, keep everything going, you know, for the next five or six months because we're going to get busy. Y2K came and <laughs> nothing happened. I mean, it was like a non-event. So. Why we still don't know. It's a it's a big mystery. I mean, many companies probably took care of the situation. So basically, then I, I laid off some people, and uh, and then we leveled out. Had the new products coming in, it was okay. But then something else would happen, and we'd lay lay off another twenty percent of the people. Level out. Then the dot com bubble hit. Two thousand eight hit. It was just one thing after another, after another, after. It was just relentless. I mean, out of all the times that we you know lay off and level out. You know, we would think we would, you know, pick up again somehow. It just didn't happen. Uh, so for 15 years, it was a decline from uh, a company that was bringing $10 million a year down to zero. Wow. I what mean, a story. Was, yeah. It was it was really awful. I mean, uh, ultimately, I, I let off every employee. Uh, in the end, a couple of employees actually worked for nothing for me just to try to keep it going. Uh, the loyalty was good. And uh the personal stress levels were off the chart. Uh, I mean, I mean, literally, I mean, during that period, I, I lost every asset I had. I mean, I had like four houses, four cars, a yacht in St. Martin. I was living big based on all of that. All of that was stripped away. Uh, there was a divorce involved because of the stress levels. And I mean, it was just, it was just total devastation. And the, the levels of depression personally were off the chart. Yeah, I can't even imagine. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. I'm, I'm sure that this is unfortunately more common than we think, where sometimes we hold on to our companies longer than maybe we should. And I think that's, that's, right. that's certainly a message that you're sharing. And the other side is, is it possible to time the market? And in your situation, hindsight's twenty twenty, seeing that optimal time, mm-hmm. but in the moment, it felt really good, as you were saying. Profits were going up, and you had all these houses, and you had the place in St. Yeah. Martin, and yeah. and live in La Vida Loca. I mean, it's hard to walk away from that. Do you think if you were going to put yourself back in that time, mm-hmm. and you were going to talk to yourself and say, Bill, hey, here's the future. You're coming from the future. <laughs> Listen to me. This is what's going on. Do you think you could have convinced yourself? <laughs> That's a great question. To sell. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great question. So, So two things come to mind. First... I'd never had any concept of an exit strategy. That was the biggest problem, right? Uh, and I tell my clients now, hey, you know, if you're going to start a business, one of the first things you have to do is design the exit strategy. I never really had an exit strategy because I don't think I wanted one, honestly. I mean, it's like this was my baby, as as you're saying, and I wanted to grow it as much as I can. And as I said, I wasn't in the world of buying and selling and, you know, wheeling and dealing, you know, like maybe Wall Streeters are. So I didn't know that world. I didn't know how to do that. And in my mind, no, this was my company. I was going to work it forever. Now, I don't know if I thought that consciously, but unconsciously, that's the way I was acting. So so if you ask me now, would I have sold it back then? Oh, man, you're in the middle of all of that excitement. I mean, it's such a great point, Laurie. You're in the middle of that excitement and you're juiced up and all you're thinking about is growing and working and working. 
at that point to think about exit strategy is almost counterintuitive. Very, very counterintuitive because you want to ride that ride. You want to see where it goes. This is what all the work was for. (laughs) You can't get off that roller coaster. You're going up the hill. You got to see where it's at. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. I also am curious, you know, with riding the highs and then going through the lows, how did you bounce back? Is that how you got into improvisational training with humor because if you're uh, if you're not going to cry you got to laugh right yes well that's a great question it didn't exactly happen that way but how did it happen well well first of all i learned a lot more on the way down and on the way up i mean probably 10 times more i mean you learn about yourself how you handle situations do i just go out and bark and yell and scream at everybody i mean i didn't thank god but yeah, uh, a lot of the employees, I got to see the true colors. Some of them, like I said, worked for me for nothing at the end, whereas others wanted to sue me if I didn't pay them uh, and everything in between. You learn about your perseverance. You learn about your morality. You learn about your, your bravery, your courage. How can you handle all of this? I mean, so anyway, uh, having a, I don't call that a failure anymore. I just call that a contraction. <laughs> it's an expansion and a contraction. It's like an in-breath and an out-breath. That's life, right? Everything cycles. Everything cycles, which I think is something we need to keep in mind. And and I learned a ton during that contraction. Now, how did I get through that? A ton of faith. I mean, really, a ton of faith. Uh, in the end, uh, I just said, you know what? There's no such thing as security. Uh, in fact, I used to teach this stuff. I used to say security is an illusion. I said, the only thing you really have is yourself and connection to spirit if you believe that. That's it. Everything else is gravy. The money, the cause, the, the children, the family, the spouses, that's all extra. They could all disappear. And in my case, they did. So that's what you have. So you just have to have faith. And I did. Uh, and because I wasn't going to, I mean, even though I went to bed many nights saying, hey, if I don't wake up in the morning, it's okay. I mean, I, I truly looked up in the sky and went to bed that way lots of times, but I wouldn't do anything myself. I said, no, I just uh, work through this somehow. And I just kept doing it, kept doing it. And and then finally, when everything got down to literally zero, I got a uh, a large consulting gig, which lasted four years. So uh, it was sort of like, like an Etch-a-Sketch, you know, it's like Etch-a-Sketch of my life. Somebody, somebody more powerful than me (laughs) to say, okay, you did it. All right. You wanted to succeed in business. You did it. You had this big company. You had it, you had it all now at your sketch. And now let's get to your real purpose in life. And I said, Oh, okay. So that's how I got through it. Uh, And so I I did get a consulting gig and um, improv was just something that again, happened accidentally. There you go. It's another accident. <laughs> I, uh, it was I just a happy took, accident. It, was, it, it took it, you on a path that helps you towards your mission. It, you know what? It really did. It really did. I mean, uh, you know, I just took a class on a lock, you know, and said, hey, improv, whatever. And I did it. And I found it so compelling because it really is about such authenticity, about learning about yourself, about awareness and, and learning so much about yourself and exploring different parts of yourself that you don't get to explore. And so with that, 
uh, yeah, that has helped me, and that's what I end up writing about. And um, uh, and you know, it's a book I always wanted to write since the '90s about you know integrating business and mindfulness. And now that I was doing improv, I included improv in that because that's all very related, you know, all the right brain nonlinear stuff. And now um, I'm sort of out there. I can't hide anymore. I used to just call myself a business consultant or a business person, even though I was building it all on consciousness principles and mindfulness principles. But I really didn't put it out there. You know, I just did it quietly. But now that that I wrote a book on it, I'm out. So I can't hide it anymore. So I'm rebranding myself now. And now, in a sense, I'm doing what what I feel like I was uh, put on this planet to do. And what is that? To bring greater consciousness to the business world. And what that means is it's not a sacrifice. If anything, the way, if anything, it provides better performances for the companies. I mean, the simplest way I could, I could describe it is, is, is to, uh, I'm encouraging all business leaders. They know that they know their skill. You know, they know their craft, their skill. I'm not there to teach them, you know, you know, sales one-on-one, uh, management one-on-one. They know how to do that. I'm encouraging them to incorporate all of their nonlinear attributes of, of their, of their right brain, which means their intuitive qualities, their imagination qualities, their creative qualities that we never learned in school. And we almost put downplay them. Oh, that's intuition, gut feeling, go away. But every business leader knows that that's really important. So I'm encouraging them to bring it out even more, showing them many ways in which they can use that. Uh, and improvisation falls in line with that because improvisation is about awareness, authenticity. And if they do that, they have bringing more resources to the table. They'll have better decision making. They'll they'll perform better in their corporations and they'll do it more consciously because they're aware of what's going on. Having that mindset, having the focus, letting yourself improvise to your point, maybe in different settings and different ways and challenging ourselves in unique ways. I think that's a, a really cool thing that you're doing and how you've brought it all together. And, you know, finding your path is, is not easy. And your path is a little bit circuitous, yes. like ups yeah. and downs. And I appreciate how you shared that, Bill. I wanted to know if you had any words of wisdom from your experience that you'd share to business owners that are listening today. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, let's see. There's, there's business um, uh, suggestions and then uh, the other suggestions. The business suggestions are, yeah, get, get a good coach. You know, uh, I didn't have that. You know, get a good model, whether it's a board of directors or a good lawyer or accountant, someone that you can, that you can be accountable to in a sense. You know, to 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 speak of what's going on in the business to get guidance. All right, there's always that's always important in whatever job. I didn't have that. I didn't do that. So in a business sense, definitely do that. And the other piece of it is, yeah, uh, work work on a basis of awareness and consciousness because you'll get better performance out of your employees, out of all of your relationships with all your stakeholders. You'll have better results, and you'll be able to sleep better at night. Absolutely. And I think the learnings that maybe I take away from what you've talked about is you made a point about thinking earlier about some exit strategies yeah. than you did. Maybe knowing what that business is worth as mm-hmm. you go through building your company so that you can have points of decision along the way and recognizing that there are timing issues and it is mm-hmm. difficult to try to know if there's a peak or a valley, but being mindful of all of those things and maybe also there's a lesson in here about sort of keeping yourself in check through your advisors, as, as you mentioned, and surrounding yourself yes. with people that you can trust. Yes. 
And, and that's those are the people that will talk to you about that. Because when you're in the midst of that excitement, as you well pointed out, you're not thinking about that. So if you have advisors with the board of directors, some some advisors, accountants, lawyers, they can help give you a, a bigger perspective on things and help you think at least think about when you should pull out pull out or when you want to. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Do you have a favorite quote you'd like to share? Well, I have something I keep on my desk here, and it's a uh, it's a little paperweight. All right, I don't know if you could see it, but but I'll I'll say it. It says someone gave this to me. I think it was my daughter for a gift. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? It's pretty famous, and I, I keep it on my desk to, to remind me, okay, just do it. <laughs> you, know, if, you know, if you got an idea and a thought, you know, uh, yeah, don't hesitate. Now, uh, we all come from different places, all right? The place I come from is, is, uh, uh, is, is I, I don't take big chances, all right. So so for me, sometimes I need a little push. But if you're on the other side of the spectrum where you're taking chances every day, well, then maybe you need a little bit of balance. All right. So there's the, there's the balance of, of the two there. But clearly, I think most of us are on the side of, of, of I want people to go inside and find out what they, their deepest desires are, what their deepest yearnings are, their deepest talents are, and then have the confidence to just go out and do it. Great. Thank you so much. And if people want to get in touch with you to learn more, what's a good way to do that? Sure. Uh, my website is uh, BillPrinceOfValley.com. And it's uh, pretty straightforward. You can you can call me or email me or whatever. I'll be happy to have a conversation with you. That's great. And I'll include that in the show notes as well. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show with me, Bill. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your, mm-hmm. your honesty and authenticity mm-hmm. in all of your experience. Uh, thank you, Laurie. It's my pleasure. To listeners, thank you so much for your support. Catch Succession Stories on your favorite podcast player or on our YouTube channel, and be sure to subscribe to the show. If you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join us next time for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com. Dot com.